evening we're going to be looking at this story and there are five different people or groups of people in Mark 15 that I want us to look at. Uh, And here's what I want to invite us to do tonight. As we're looking at these five different people, these five different groups, I want to invite us to find um, points of identification with them. Uh, To notice when things that the people in the story, things that they do and say when they look and sound a lot like us. My goal for tonight, or one of my goals, is to help us see that this is not just some good story that happened a long time ago in the Bible, but that this is our good story, that that what God began to do 2,000 years ago, he's still doing today, even in our midst. The five groups that we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at the Sanhedrin, we're going to look at Pilate, we're going to look at the crowd, this guy named Barabbas, and Jesus, and and we're going to just kind of walk through those five different people. I invite you to open up your Bibles and to read with me. We're going to read through this entire text, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. You guys with me tonight? Good. All right. Let's, let's go. Starting verse 1, it says, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus. They led him away. They handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, Jesus, of many things. So Pilate again asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked the crowd. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has Jesus committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder crucify him wanting to satisfy the crowd Pilate released Barabbas to them he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified this is the word of God from Mark chapter 15 the first group that I want us to look at tonight is uh, the Sanhedrin now the Sanhedrin we've talked about them as we've been working our way through the book of Mark was made up of three different groups of people the chief priest the teachers of the law and the elders. And um, these were the spiritual um, authority. These were the ones that had the spiritual heritage, the ones whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had, had raised them in church. These were the ones that, if you and I had a question about scripture, these were the ones that we would go to. The, the, these were the, the, the guys that, that in our churches and in our cities just had respect because of the lives that they had lived. This is who the Sanhedrin was in the biblical times, and yet what I noticed in Mark chapter 15, two things that kind of characterize them. The first is this, that that they had made up their mind a long time ago about Jesus. Verse 1 said that they had already made their plans. You see, when you get down to it, there was just a closed offness, an unwillingness. Despite all the things that Jesus was doing and even doing right in front of them. I mean, they'd seen Jesus raise this guy, Lazarus, from the dead. Yet they, they did not want to believe. They refused to believe. 
The second thing that kind of characterized this group, the Sanhedrin in this story, is that, that at the end of the day, they, they really were just out for number one. They lived for themselves. You get this interesting detail in verse 10 where it says that, that Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. That word self-interest, it also has this meaning of jealousy. The reality is that the Sanhedrin was, was jealous of Jesus. They were jealous that people loved Jesus and were drawn to Jesus instead of them. They didn't like the thought of Jesus having the power and the authority and the attention. And they especially didn't like Jesus having the power and authority over their lives. That they liked living for themselves. And it's easy to read about the Sanhedrin, just kind of kick them, be like, oh man, what idiots, what, what stupid people for not seeing Jesus right before them. And I go, man, before we are quick to kick them and throw stones at them. I identify with these guys in a lot of ways. If you were to look at my life, man, you'd see that I've spent a lot of it being resistant to God because at the end of the day, I just love living for me. I love doing what I want, spending my money how I want to spend it. I love having the ultimate authority and say in my life, and I know what it's like to have been there. Some of us find ourselves in their shoes this evening, kind of the different side of the Sanhedrin where there's just this closed offness to Jesus. And maybe for a very good reason, maybe early in your childhood or growing up and you were hurt by someone who called themselves a Christian or you were burned very badly by church or and so you just kind of made up your mind man if if Jesus is like those people then I want nothing to do with that Jesus if you look in your life if you've just kind of had this wall of resistance up you've never really given Jesus a chance Second group or person I want us to look at is this guy named Pilate, and he was the Roman governor in charge of overseeing the Jews who lived in Jerusalem at this time. Pilate reported to Rome, who happened to be the world power of the day, and his direct report was to the Caesar, who sat on Rome's throne. He was literally in charge of the entire like, world. And Pilate finds himself on this Friday morning having a conversation with Jesus, face to face with the son of God in front of this crowd some of which are the Sanhedrin in verse 2 Pilate and Jesus are having this conversation this is the first question that he asked him is as Pilate this governor with authority meets Jesus and he asks him are you the king of the Jews and, and Jesus looks at him and he says you have said so and I go that's a pretty strange statement what is Jesus saying there and what I realized this week as I was digging and, and reading and learning is it's like Jesus is saying to him Pilate you would do well to consider that question. It's like Jesus is saying to him, like, I want you to think about this, Pilate. Like, think about the things that, that you've been hearing that have been making your way up to have been making their way up to the palace about the things that I have been doing, the miracles I've been performing, the things that I've been teaching. I want you, you would do very well to consider that question. Am I actually the king? Keeps going. 
The chief priest, during the middle of this conversation in verse 3, accused Jesus of many things. And so as Pilate and Jesus are having this conversation, the crowd, the Sanhedrin starts yelling things at Pilate. He's a blasphemer. He's no friend of Caesar. He's a liar. He's a fraud. He's a phony. He's no friend of Rome. Pilate's having this conversation with Jesus. All these accusations are flying at him. Aren't you going to answer him? Don't you see how many things that they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Here's what I find very confusing about Pilate. You read the rest of this text, you read the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and not Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, and, and you get this sense that he knows Jesus is not guilty of the things they're accusing him of. You just kind of get this sense from Pilate that he understands that all their accusations are just baloney. And you get the sense that there's something inside of Pilate that, that sees something different about Jesus. That he recognizes that, that Jesus is different than every other religious and political figure that has ever risen up. And yet, at the end of the day, Pilate was more concerned about what people thought of him. Pilate was more concerned with keeping the peace and keeping the favor among the people than he was standing to discover the truth. That although Pilate might have believed something intellectually about Jesus when the rubber hit the road, he would not stand by Jesus. You know, very few of us directly identify with Pilate and the fact that we hold public authority. But maybe we find ourselves here tonight and We've never given Jesus space in our lives to move or to work um, because of the peace that it would disturb in our friend groups or in our marriages, in our families. Maybe you come here tonight and you go, man, I, I, I believe that there's just something about different, that as I read through the scriptures, I, I know there's something different about Jesus than, than every other world religion. There's something more beautiful, there's something more truthful, there's something more lasting, there's just something about this story, there's something about this Jesus, this God that is more beautiful and appealing and more real than any other God I've ever seen, any other thing that I've ever pursued. And yet you're wrestling with this question, man, if, if I pursue this Jesus, if I stand with this Jesus, it's going to have some drastic implications for my family my friend group. It's going to make Thanksgiving very awkward <laughs> being around a table of people who don't believe in Jesus. It's, it's going to make my future and the inheritance that I'm set to, to, to receive, man, it's, it's going to throw all those things into question. And some of us come here and we, we're really wrestling with these things tonight. Or maybe we come here and we believe in Jesus intellectually. But when we face a situation where people are going to think different or treat us different if we stand by Jesus, and a lot of times it's just easier to not stand with Christ because of what it's going to cost us. 
little while back, I felt God was kind of putting it on my heart to reach out to some people from my past and my background, um, kind of back home that, that did not know, that don't love, don't follow God. And I'm the preacher of our church, one of the preachers of our church, and it's like my job to do that, right? And God was putting that in my heart, and I was just so crippled with fear. Go, man, they, they know me. They've grown up with me. They, they saw all the foolish and the stupid stuff I did. They, think, they saw me, like all the, the, the football games I played, all the things that I was a part of. Like, they're going to think that I'm just some weirdo, some crazy spiritual nut. And a lot of times, isn't it true that it's just easier to say nothing? It's easier to not stand with Jesus when our reputation's on the line, or we see the crowd in this story. And I don't want to say too much about the crowd, but I will say this. The crowd is easily influenced. I was reading this, and I was questioning, why is the crowd even here? Like, were they in Jerusalem as tourists for Passover? Were they on their way to breakfast with one of their friends and they saw this kind of public spectacle unfolding? Were they just people that like being in the middle of things? They find themselves in this big crowd standing in front of this public trial, Jesus and Pilate. And they find themselves getting caught up in the moment. Look with me in verse 11. It says, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas. Pilate asked the crowd in verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd shouted, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. The crowd shouted all the louder, crucify him. You know, this is crazy. I wonder if any of these people even knew Jesus, if some of these people ever even heard of him and they find themselves getting caught up in the moment, getting caught up in this crowd and they're screaming, kill that man. Can you imagine? And I wonder if there are places in our lives that are being more influenced by the world than by Jesus. Maybe we're more like the crowd than we want to admit. Maybe we find ourselves doing things just like the world because the world tells us to act one way or to think one way. The world tells us how to deal with our sexuality that, that we should have as many people in our lives that we're sleeping with and messing around with so we can find exactly what we want. The world's telling us this story. The world's telling us this story about money that, Man, that you work hard and, and you worked hard to graduate from college in three and a half years and every penny that you make, man, is yours and you're entitled to it. So every dollar you make, spend it all on yourself, on your comfort and your pleasure and your joy and your security and the world just has this way of speaking to us and, and so often we just find ourselves just being in the middle of the crowd, like listening to culture instead of our Christ. Or Barabbas, fourth character in our story, the fourth person. Verse six, it says it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. 
A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up, asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Verse 15, it says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Barabbas was a murderer. He had taken somebody's daughter, someone's brother, someone's best friend, killed them. He's this nationalistic revolutionist who opposed Rome. Picture what he was experiencing, sitting in his prison cell, moments from dying, from facing the death penalty. He'd just eaten his last meal. The reality was starting to sink in that that he would never go home and see his family again. Bobby, you never get to go home and see your wife and kids again. Think about that. Tyler, you think about that. It's like you never get to go to work again. His life was over in just a matter of moments. And then all of a sudden, things turn out drastically different than he ever even could imagine. That in this one instance, he goes free. Even though he was guilty, he was released. Can you even imagine what he would be feeling? The joy, the hope, the freedom. Brandon, that you get to go home and see McCall again when you thought you'd never get to see her again. TC, that you get to go and hang out with your house church again when you thought that this was the last moment you'd ever see them. Like, can you imagine what this would have felt like? The trajectory of his life was no longer marked by prison and chains and death. No, the new trajectory of his life was about freedom and release and joy and a future. One last thing that I'll share about Barabbas, that his name in the original language, it meant son of the Abba. Abba just means father. Son of the father. And this is going to be important for us as we turn to the final person in our story, Jesus. Up until this point in the story, man, this is just a depressing story, isn't it? (laughs) It's like a rain cloud. It's depressing and it's sad and the reality that we identify with so many of these people that we don't want to identify with. And if this was the end of the story, it would be so incredibly sad, so incredibly dark. And then Jesus comes into the story. And it's like, man, when when he comes in the story, when you read about Jesus, it's, it's like life and joy and, and peace and hope and, and release and freedom and, and mercy and all these things just start filling this very bleak story. I want to give us this line to think about as we talk about Jesus for a minute. You can write this down if you want or you don't have to, but I want you to think about this as I spent a few minutes talking about Jesus, that, that he submitted his life to become our substitute. He submitted his life to 
become our substitute, revealing that we are both guilty and dearly loved. He submitted his life to become our substitute, revealing that we are both guilty and dearly loved. Look with me in verse three. The chief priests were accusing Jesus of these things as he's standing up front in front of the crowds with Pilate. And Pilate asked him, aren't you gonna answer Jesus? Don't you hear all these accusations that they're throwing at you? In verse five, Jesus made no reply. How strange this must have been for Pilate. I was reflecting back on my life in the moments where I've been innocent and yet accused. I don't remember one single time where my brother broke something in our house and my mom accused me and told me I was gonna have to pay for it. I don't ever remember a time just being silent. Or I think about the time when I was 17 years old and I was literally just driving the speed limit and this cop just pulls me over and starts accusing me of all these things and the the things that I'd said and these things that I'd done. And I promise you in that moment, I didn't just sit there. And yet how different Jesus is in our story. That he wasn't worried about justice for himself. He wasn't concerned about getting what he didn't deserve. Or sorry, he wasn't concerned about not getting what he didn't deserve. It seems as we look at Jesus in this story that he was living for a much bigger justice, a far more impactful and beneficial one. Several thousand years before Jesus stepped foot on earth, this man named Isaiah, who has a book in the middle of the Bible, prophesied, he predicted about the Messiah, this man Jesus who would come. And this is what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse five and six. He says, and he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. That we all like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And in verse 10 it says, and it was God's will to crush him. And the Lord makes Jesus' life an offering for sin. If you hear nothing else tonight, I want you to hear this. It was God's will that Jesus, his one and only son would die so that you and I could live. It was God's will that Jesus, his one and only son, would be sent and die so that you and I would live. You see, Jesus, he came to take all of our sin and to hold it so that God could punish it, so that that God would continue to be true to his character, both just and loving, not letting sin go unpunished and not letting sinners go unpursued. I love what Peter says about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says that Jesus, he suffered for every single one of our sins. The only righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. This weekend, I got away with a couple of my friends and had one of these nights on Wednesday night. I just woke up in the middle of the night and I could not fall back asleep. Aren't those the worst nights? Like, laid in bed for like three hours. And 
And for whatever reason, I was laying in bed and the thoughts that were passing through my mind were just kind of reliving my sinful past. Started thinking about all the, the immorality in my life. All the lies. All the jealousy. All the arrogance, all the self-righteousness, all the pride. And I was sitting there thinking about all these feeling the shame and wishing so badly I could go back and redo and undo and fix. Laying in bed thinking about how ashamed I am and how sad and how disappointed I am that, that I would have chosen to do those things, to, to go against God, to rebel against God. And then I remembered Mark 15, what I was talking about today. That Jesus would take all of my sin and all of my brokenness and all of my shame and he would put it on himself so that I could go free, be forgiven, so that I could know and enjoy God both now and forever. What a savior Jesus is. What a man he is. There has never been, there never will be anyone like him. Jesus is so different than the Sanhedrin and the crowd and Barabbas and Pilate and you and me. If Jesus' own self-interest were the utmost of concern, he would not have died, but his life, his everything was placed in the hands of the Father and it was a Father's will that he would be the substitution for us. That he would take the punishment for every sin, for every act of rebellion, for every sinful thought, for every mischievous and devious and sinful way. It was God's will that Jesus would be the substitution. And Jesus took it. He drank the cup. And he didn't put up a fight. The only innocent one submitted himself and he became our substitution. And I think we have to understand that God didn't send Jesus for us because he had to. He sent Jesus to die for us because he wanted to. And until you and I come to this reality, come to grips, until we understand that we are both guilty before God and loved by God, we'll miss out on Jesus. But when we can start to see Christ for who he is, that, that he is the one who's come, that although we are guilty to forgive us, to release us, and he's come to show us, not that God hates us or tolerates us, but that he dearly loves us. And it's in that place when we see Jesus as the one who's come to forgive us and love us, where we really start to live, where we really start to come alive in the kingdom of God. If we spend our whole lives just living on this um, mushy, God is love, accepts everything, doesn't care about anything. We're gonna have a very distorted view of Jesus. In fact, we won't appreciate the cross. We won't appreciate the great exchange that happens here. If we spend all of our time in this place where we just kick ourselves, where we're so aware of our own failing and our own sin, we're gonna have such a distorted picture of Jesus thinking that he expects us to do all the performing and all the climbing and all the achieving. 
And I think it's in this middle ground where Jesus invites us to see that we are so in need of a savior. And that's what he's come to do for us. And he loves us so much. We understand that we are Barabbases. That we are guilty. Yet sons and daughters of the Abba. That the only son of God came and took our place. So you and I could become children of God. So we could belong in the family of God forever and ever. As we end tonight, man, what are we supposed to do with this? I want to just encourage you, if you're in this place and you do not follow Jesus, I want to and just say, first of all, thank you. We're so glad that you're here. Keep coming. Uh, we hope and we want this to be a safe place for people to come and to explore and to ask questions and to find God. I'll just say this. If, if you will keep searching for Jesus, you will find him. That's a promise that he makes to us in Matthew chapter 7. It's a promise that I found to be true in my life that if you seek him, you'll find him. But if you come here tonight and you go, man, I don't follow Jesus, but I want to know that Jesus you're talking about. Brandon, I want to, I want to know him. I want to step into this life. And you can do that tonight. We're going to stand here in just a minute, Will and Kayla are going to stand back up and lead us in worship. And if you want to, to know Jesus, or if you just want to uh, ask, get together with someone, if you have questions, if whatever it is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you want to know him, you're more interested, come to the respond banner when we get done. When we, when we stand up and we start singing, come up front and we'd love to, to talk and help however we can. For those of you who do follow Jesus, a lot of times we come in this place and we are so well aware that we are the Sanhedrin and that we are the crowd and that we are Pilate and I think too often we forget that we're Barabbas. Not just that we're set free, but that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. I think it's so easy to come in here and to forget that, that we are children of God. My wife and I have our routine every night. We'll put our kids to bed and we'll spend a few minutes together. And then when the kids finally go to bed, like uh, we'll walk back into their room and we'll check on our kids and make sure they're okay. And last night I found myself just looking at my little girl, Finley. Just looking at her. Tears start forming in my eyes as I just thinking about how much I love that little girl. close her door we walk down the hall to my son Jones's room and open the door we see him laying on his stomach and sleeping and see his little heart beating his chest I mean he's he's my boy I'd do anything for that little man and I think we we come into this place and because we so often sin and struggle and we take our eyes off of what God has done for us and we fix our eyes instead on what we have done. We come into this place and it's like we, we think that we've given up being children of God. 
We come in here on Sundays and we like hang our heads because we sinned last night, because we messed up this past week, because we didn't spend four hours in the word every day. And we come into this place that's supposed to be a place of celebration and joy and forgiveness and holiness and reverence and celebration. And instead of coming in here and meeting with God, we come in and we hang our heads because we're, we're fixing our eyes, not on what Christ has done for us, but what we have done. And I think God is inviting us. Some of us who are followers of Jesus, tonight we come in this place and we just need to be reminded that that we are forgiven. That we are so loved that Jesus has taken our place. And that Jesus, not you, not me, Jesus alone has done everything necessary in order for us to be at peace with God right now and forevermore. Jesus has done it. Jesus has done it. And as we take communion tonight, man, if, if you just want some people to pray over you, you know, one of the things that I've found in my life when, when I've just been down, I've been in a hard week or a hard season or a hard year where it's like I'm just overwhelmed with sin, I've taken my eyes off of God. One of the greatest things is to get brothers and sisters of mine who love and follow Jesus, just put their hands on my shoulders just to pray for me. And I invite you here in just a minute, if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you just like, you feel like you're at the bottom right now, you just, you, you, you don't feel like you're a child of God. You don't think, you, you think you've done too much and, gone, and you've gone too far. Let some of the brothers and sisters of this church family, man, put our hands on our shoulders and just pray for you. The respond banner is not just for people who feel like they've like, shipwrecked their lives. It's for people who feel like they shipwrecked their, lead, their weeks and people who just need prayer and encouragement, like, And we just invite you, man, don't leave this place tonight. If you need prayer, let us come pray for you. For the rest of us, those who are followers of Jesus, as we take communion, I think so often we're waiting for these big moments. God, what is your will for me? We're waiting for these moments. This is the the mountaintop for Jesus. This is the moment that everything had been pointing towards and and waiting for where, where he would give his life. This was the will of God that he would be crushed for mankind. I think so often I go, man, God, what is the, the one thing that you have for me? What's the thing that you have for Stoney? What's the, the thing that you have for us, God? And I know that God has got big plans for us, beautiful plans. His will is perfect, and it's going to be an amazing adventure. But I wonder if right now God is looking for us to act on the things he's already put in front of us instead of waiting for that big thing, whatever it is, whatever we think it is. So I invite you as we take communion to explore this question. What is God inviting you into right now? As you take the bread, you drink the cup, the people that you came with, I invite you to share with that question. What is God inviting you into right now? Is it to invite a person in your life that you've just been dying to, to, to invite to come to worship with you on a Sunday night or, or that you've been wanting to invite to be a part of your house church or maybe it's a coworker who is sick and you really believe that, that God still heals people and you believe that, that, that you've been a part of, of moments where you've laid hands on sick people and God has healed them and, and you know that God's inviting you to go and put your hands on them to pray yet you're so scared. What they're gonna think, what if God doesn't answer Maybe God's putting in front of you to start pursuing Jesus more fully, more passionately with your friends, your spouse, your fraternity, your team. And I just invite us, man, the the best the scriptures will be 
is not when we read them like history lessons, but we understand that this is our story. Because this is what God is inviting us into. And so do not just let this pass from us tonight. May we act and we step into this abundant life with God. Let's pray.